Welcome to another edition of Old School Guns, the podcast that tells you exactly like it is. And this is episode number 141, 141. And as always, if you have any uh, questions or comments, you can email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com or leave them in the comments section on Podbean, which is where I create the podcast. And so I will get them and I will read them and answer them. Um, 141, that's one of my favorite numbers, and the reason why is way back in the day when I went to U.S. Army Airborne School and and, uh, and many times thereafter, I rode on C-141s. It was a great aircraft. Um, they're all retired now uh, simply because, um, you know, just the age. I mean, they started in the 60s and every major airlift operation they were really the backbone and so we basically flew the wings off them and and uh, retired them in the uh 2005 2006 right around there but it was a great aircraft and uh really every strategic airlifter today owes you know its design has design elements from the c141 and uh i can tell you that um just the thought of jumping out of a four engine jet was amazing and then actually doing it the exit I, I really liked it I mean you know you kind of went sideways you didn't have this plummet down that you had out of the C-130s or even worse out of helicopters so it was a great aircraft and I've got other C-141 stories but we'll do those for another time of course everyone has probably at least heard about because nobody has the stomach to watch you know creaky Joe Biden babbling about gun control and it's like you know another here's a guy who opened our borders and fentanyl is coming across in in just scads and it's killing a hundred thousand people a year that's okay but losing 50 or 60 people a year to shootings um is is just unacceptable to him and what we have is he gave this speech after seeing the canadian fascist Justin Trudeau, a criminal who really needs to be put in jail. I mean, is is Canada becoming like everything the Russians said about the Ukraine is kind of coming true with Canada. I mean, they're now just basically a fascist state. Uh, look at the way they treated those truckers who were protesting the COVID thing. I mean, they treated them horribly. And then remember the, the infamous beatdown of a 74-year-old man who honked his horn, you know, this is the crime of the century here, he honked his horn in support of the uh, Canadian truckers who were protesting COVID, and the, you know, those those thug, worm Canadian police pulled him out and put a beatdown on a 74-year-old man, a beatdown. You haven't seen that since Nazi Germany, and that's who the Canadians are. Uh, the Canadian flag probably in the center of the oak leaf needs a swastika um you know maybe someday we'll launch a special military operation to free canada but now as a whim uh they're making all handguns illegal which um you know is is just to be expected and and the condescendingly they say look south of the border and see what you know a lot of guns do well i would rather have this than look north of the border and see a proto crypto fascist state 
crypto-Nazis are what the Canadians are. And really, when we get really real adult leadership back in the White House, we should probably close our border to them. I mean, we should it should be treated like Cuba. Um, if people are, are coming across seeking freedom, we should give them immediate status and shelter. And the government should be treated like North Korea, because that's essentially what they are. They're no better than North Koreans. They really aren't. Um, and you say, well, that's overstatement and all that. Well, just look. Look what they're doing. Um, when they're beating people because they want to protest COVID restrictions. And it's not like they were tearing up or doing anything bad. It was just truckers in a convoy. And the people supporting them were getting beaten, harassed. Uh, this is like crystal knocked. All this kind of bad stuff. Only instead of Jews, they're just targeting people who don't think like them as fascists so the fascist canadian government canada is a horrible place the canadian government are horrible people and uh, we probably shouldn't tolerate them on our continent we should probably remove them and do something you know you kind of you kind of it rings true the stuff that the russians were saying about the ukrainians which may or may not be true, maybe partially true. I, I don't really know. But a lot of that stuff is true about the Canadians. They're evil. And then you have, you know, old Joe Biden, the ultimate influence peddler. Fortunately, he's so his presidency is so mortally wounded that he's never going to get any kind of legislation through the Congress. Even if it gets through the House, it's going to a dead end in the Senate. Uh, he's got no political capital left. He has nothing. He's a he's a pathetic, senile figurehead that uh, can't even won't even discuss his administration won't even discuss school safety because they're crazy about AR-15s or or some other such a now it's nine millimeter. You know, don't think, don't think that crazy old Joe and you know crooked crooked hunter biden should be in prison too that the ultimate influence peddling lazy worthless <laughs> son the ultimate lazy worthless child uh, he should be in jail and sh so should uh, fascist fauci you know all these guys who are just oh covid 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 that's all they want to talk about now sorry covid's here we've basically dealt with it and and that's it is what it is but they they want to raise that again they want to they want to turn the clock back two years where everybody's cowering in their house and washing a package that when a package shows up people are washing it you know so you know those guys if you think they're going to stop at ar-15s you're crazy he even mentioned it nine millimeter you know the most popular and i actually got a question about nine millimeters we'll get to later in the cast um you know, he, they're talking about getting rid of 9 millimeters. They're talking about getting rid of any. You know, imagine what a good defense gun you're going to have when you can only have a 5-round magazine. You know, I mean, that's it. And does a 10-round magazine make a difference to somebody who's bent on committing a crime? No, it doesn't. But having good security will. And uh, there's a whole bunch of things they can do. And, and I don't know, they got the stomach to do it billions for ukraine but not one penny for school security that should be their uh 
that should be their uh, their mantle right there and uh, I can only hope everyone's predicting a giant red wave in the fall and I just I just hope that's true Th these people have to go and they have to be kept out and they have to be gerrymandered out whatever it takes they they have got to go but um, yes we should have an operation free Canada I mean hey we freed the Iraqis why not the Canadians I like Canadians better than Iraqis so why don't we free them I mean uh, you know they need they need to have a free country and not a proto-fascist state that acts capriciously and recklessly on their behalf so operation free Canada and it wouldn't even cost very much because you know they don't have very much so there we go oh that brings me to the next thing to comment on um, I was on AR15.com which is you know it's, it's it is what it is I'll just leave it there but there was serious hate for this guy James Jaeger uh, I don't know he, tactical response he's got hundreds of videos on YouTube um, basically a super over-the-top dude who in my I would never take a class from him I think a lot of the things they do are questionable and I have a hard time with a lot of trainers in general anyway uh, this guy went over first of all I, I do feel really sorry for this guy apparently he he grew up in a house that didn't have much of a presence of a father and the only thing he says the only thing he ever got was his father is now the terminal disease ALS you know Lou Gehrig's disease and I feel really bad for that I mean apparently it's hereditary at least in this case and uh, you know you know the poor guy I don't know how old he is but I'm sure he's under 60 I mean he's between 50 and 60 other than that yes he is a very sketchy trainer he is the wrong kind of spokesman in many ways uh, over the top the tattoos the you know just the whole the whole picture the whole optics are are not really what we're looking for so you know um that all being said he went over to the ukraine for uh, to, to at least ostensibly to uh train ukrainians and help them apparently it was just kind of a publicity stunt sort of deal at least that's what it comes down to me by the time you get there get situated train if you're back in a month you haven't done much training that's that's probably the you know like training two classes so what did you do train 20 30 people and then get video and call it good I don't know but um, yeah there's some serious hate on that and you know I think that it, it kind of goes to something that we have to kind of look who's representing us as a community and do we endorse that and there's no way you can endorse some of the stuff that James Yeager has done and I don't know uh, I don't have a I don't have a real harsh opinion of them but by the same token I'm not very impressed so I just wanted to say that there's but there are some dudes on ar15.com and holy cow do they <laughs> they let them have it I mean they they let them have it another thing um, you know everybody's all wrapped up to in this new I call it a new term but it's been around for a while it's called EDC everyday carry now I will say that you know my thoughts on everyday carry are that you cannot get a list from someone else as to what you should carry you can get some ideas from them but really someone else's list is someone else's list and 
to illustrate that, there was a a podcast. It was going over a book. It was written by some former Navy SEAL guy in like 2015 or 2016. So the material is is 2015-2016. And that doesn't really matter because what really matters was this guy's everyday carry was everything from two pistols, several secreted handcuff keys, uh, razor blades hidden in your belt and in your trouser hem, uh, a compass strapped onto the top of your boot, presumably so you could look down at it and see which direction you're going. Um, there are probably a lot of other things too. Now, you know, I'm sure that if you carry two pistols, you need to carry spare ammo. Um, you know, the, the, and the coup de gras of this thing was, of course, you could get a, and, and I'm not making this up, get a cigar tube um, and inside it put some cash and whatever else and go ahead and put it in your butt and that way you know hey if you get grabbed by somebody you would still have some cash on you and probably have some other things in there I don't know um, <coughs> it's a um, sorry for the cough um, but it's it's ridiculous it's absolutely ridiculous and I, the first question I would say is whenever you read something like that where so-and-so recommends this okay does he actually carry that every day now I don't want to call this guy a liar, but is he really putting a cigar tube in his rectum every day that's got, you know, 60 or $80 of cash in it? Hey, I've got a wallet for that. Um, you know, this is all, this is ridiculous. This is some guy using his credentials and, you know, getting these kind of, you know, it's almost like the old Beverly Hillbillies, Jethro Bodine, the double knot spy. He's getting all these kind of little tradecraft things and, and putting them all together and say, man, if you do this, you're, you're totally prepared no matter what happens. Um, I, I think that's highly flawed. Your everyday carry is determined by you, and it should be based on an analysis of where you go and what you do. And it could it could change. It could change. Um you know, I, I would think two pistols is probably an unfortunate choice. Unless you're an undercover cop and you, you need a secondary handgun for some reason. A lot of policemen have done that. But I, I will also tell you that your chances of being grabbed and subdued and tied up or handcuffed by a non-law enforcement agency is really remote. I mean... You know, look at the real truth. The real truth is that's something out of the movies. What they usually do is kill you, and then they don't have to deal with you. Very seldom are they going to tie you up and, and, and do this. Um, you know, usually people get killed in carjackings or, or street muggings or something else. Nobody's really trying to grab you and tie you up and hold you for any particular reason. So the only way that kind of stuff would actually even work is... You know, let's say that you're the heir to IBM and you're you're worth billions of dollars. If you're a billionaire, hey, you might want to consider something like that in case you ever got kidnapped and they were going to hold you for ransom. Maybe then it works. But for the average guy, all that stuff is just a bunch of James Bond stuff. And, 
you know it's it's not gonna it's not really gonna work um, what you do need to think about are things like a concealable handgun uh, some spare ammunition for it and it doesn't have to be a lot but just some um, I think that something like a multi-tool is a good thing to have just in case you you uh, you know run into something you got to twist something open or cut some wire or something maybe that would be handy I don't know it depends I know for my everyday carry it, it changes quite a bit if I'm just going to and from work I'm leaving one secure environment traveling going to another secure environment so really my biggest threat is something happening to me on the road okay so that's different that does not require two guns or a cigar tube in an unmentionable place and and all that so you know that's the that's the deal with that and I don't really need a compass on my boot because I've been on that route and in this area driving around thousands of times so I know all the landmarks and I know the directions so there you go don't need a compass and if I did I would probably have and they're pretty inexpensive a little wrist compass I could put on my wristwatch band you know and there you go so uh, it seems to me that putting it on the top of your boot it, you're gonna get it crunched now when I'm on my little tiny piece of rural property hey that changes a multi-tool then becomes almost essential because you know you're out wandering around and you see something that needs to be fixed or, or uh, adjusted and you go up there and you do that with your multi-tool as opposed to trotting back to the to the tin workshop and and uh, finding something and taking it out there it just it saves a lot of time and effort so uh, you know what you carry around on your rural property is going to be a whole lot different than what a city or suburban dweller is going to to do um, the other thing is that everyday carry stuff and the more stuff you carry the more stuff you got to keep track of and all the rest of it but you know that is not a shield just having that stuff is not a shield to protect you from bad what protects you from the bad in the world is situational awareness risk assessment and you know using your brain and not your buy it now Amazon yeah this little gizmo would be cool to hide on my belt or or whatever else so I, I think that you know don't ever take some of this stuff with a grain of salt I would also say that if you are in a foreign environment you're overseas and you know of course carrying two guns is going to be impossible in that situation I would think but you know this guy's list if you're in that situation overseas and you are going to a book to get this list of shit to carry I mean you're making a big mistake you you need to go back to whatever agency you work for and get some real training um, and not rely on some guy's book here's another thing um, military intelligence military special operations including Navy SEALs and and uh, special forces you know Green Berets and all the rest of it are not spies some of those guys think that they're super cool and they got all this spy tradecraft and all the rest of it the fact of the matter is they by and large don't uh, those those are very very high-end types of uh, types of skills and the people who have those skills are probably not out 
regardless of the bio you see on the dust cover of the book, they're probably not, not out trying to cash in by writing a book that a bunch of wannabes are going to buy. Um, you know, I tore, I, I, you know, that, uh, gorilla book, I tore that up in one, I took a whole podcast and just went, you know, almost chapter by chapter and, and destroyed that thing. I mean, it was just, it's hokum. A lot of these guys are writing hokum and just because a guy has a resume doesn't mean that what he says or writes is true gospel and everything else. Um, how do you know this? Well, you kind of know this if you were around long enough and you used to read a lot of the gun magazines. There, there's still a few around, but they're not nearly as, you know, opinionated and, and hey, you need to do this, you need to do that, as they, they used to be. But they are still, you know, a, a little bit that way. But, you know, a lot of those guys who were doing that writing were just ordinary guys just writing because, hey, they got to produce a couple articles. So they just let their imaginations go wild. So I would be very, very careful about taking that kind of advice. Here's another thing I will tell you. Here's another thing I will tell you. And I, I'm not, I don't have a lot of experience with this, but I have a little bit. If you start searching a guy and you find sketchy shit, any piece of sketchy shit you find, meaning a handcuff key, a secreted map, or some other some other kind of deal, you find the, a razor blade in his belt or something, you are going to then do an A to Z search. Because this guy's already, you, you've already kind of determined that this, you're not just going to just give the guy a pat down and go. You're going to search everything, and it is going to be very exhaustive, and you're going to turn all that stuff. So the more of this stuff you have on you, if it's discovered, is an indicator that you're a person that needs to be searched further. And that's why, well, I could keep a handcuff key on my belt, hidden in my belt. I keep another one hidden in my shoe. You know, whatever, whatever all that is, hey, they find one of them, and they're going to look to make sure there aren't any others. Just the way it is. It's just human nature. They're trained to do that. Now, if it's a, a 74-year-old guy who's honking his horn in support of truckers that he's probably not going to get the pat down that some other guy who's carrying a bunch of or at least a few sketchy items is going to just the way it is you know just the way it is um you know everyday carry there are guys who go i carry a med kit everywhere i go that's good you should have a med kit in your car and all that i don't know that you need it on your person unless you're in some sort of a operation I mean what everyday carry is just a it's just a term and it doesn't mean anything until you make it mean something through the analysis of what could possibly happen to me and what would I need that's where that's where everyday carry comes in and that's why it's it's different for everyone different even two people doing the same thing if one of them is 40 years older than the other, someone's 60 and, and the other one's 20, um, they're going to have different, it's going to be different. If um, they're doing something similar but not exactly alike, well, then they might have, you know, differences in a couple of items. And maybe they, maybe everyday carry is 
having a credit card with a lot of credit on it, carrying a little bit of cash, and maybe just a, a good pen knife. You know, something that doesn't look like a weapon, but looks like something that you'd, you know, keep to open packages and other stuff with. Um, you know, could even go down to a box cutter. Who knows? Depending on where you work and what their weapons policies are, you can say, oh, yeah, I had this box cutter in my pocket. I was going to, I thought I was going to have to open some boxes, you know. Things that don't look like weapons and don't look sketchy will attract a lot less attention. Okay, here is... My favorite part of the podcast, which is questions and answers. And this one actually came from a friend of mine at work. And actually, we've had questions like this before, but I'll, I'll give this one a whirl. Why are people in the gun community dogging out the 40 Smith & Wesson? My Beretta 96 is excellent. Um, a Beretta 96 is excellent. And in fact, it's a very, it may be even the best choice in... Um, 40 Smith and Wesson. Um, it, it's all goes. It all goes back to perception. In the perception is nine millimeter ammunition has improved dramatically in the last, say, 20 years. Okay, it's the bullets are better, the ballistics are better, the terminal performance is better. All that is better, and it is so much better that the additional capacity of a nine millimeter makes it more attractive than a uh, um, 40 Smith and Wesson. Okay, you go ahead and flip that around to what I usually answer this with. That's if you have the improved 9mm ammo. And, you know, maybe that's around, but the stuff I'm seeing, which the ammo companies are cranking out as quick as they can, is 9mm FMJ. Because they know it'll function in all guns. It's, it's cheap to make. It's got a good margin, especially nowadays. Um... So, you know, you're in a perfect world, yes, you would have the high-speed ammunition. And, and I'm sure you can get that somewhere. Maybe you can order it online and find it. But, you know, the, the chance of just wandering into a store and finding it seemed to me to be still pretty small. So I, I think that's just a, that's a bogus argument. A lot of people stuff 9mm into 9mm guns, and they really don't care what it is. Um, to the average non you know, firearms enthusiast, 9mm is 9mm is 9mm. And yeah, some of the other stuff might be better, but is it going to be worth two or three times the cost? And a lot of people make that cost judgment and say no. So therefore, you know, 9mm is still the 9mm we all know going back to, you know, a long time ago. So um, and actually, our next question is about the 9mm, you know, so I, I'm going too far into this. But it is the smart 40 Smith & Wesson has got a bullet that's about a third bigger, 180 grains, 175, 180 grains versus um, 115 to 125 grains for the 9 mil similar enough velocity uh, slightly larger frontal area um, and the thing for that is rather than 15 rounds you probably get 12 rounds okay so that that's that's the cost and that's up to somebody um i'll be honest i i was when they when they were cheap and on the the market a few years ago um i was seriously tempted to pick up a 40 smith and wesson police trade-in 
Uh, the reason I did not was just pragmatically, I shoot 45 ACP, and frankly, I just don't want to sort the cases. So, you know, it's 40 Smith & Wesson. To, to my eyes, unaided looks enough like a 45 ACP. I don't want to get them confused. So, and when you're dealing with little buckets of, of, of spent brass for hand loading, it's just, it's just not worth it. So that's why I never did it. But I don't think it's a bad choice. At one time in the late 90s, early 2000s, they were thinking 40 Smith & Wesson should be a, adopted by the military. So, you know, it's, it's not any less capable than it was. Um, but there's a perception that 9mm is far superior because of its this, the developmental technology that's been put into the newer 9mm rounds. So pay your money, take your choice. And that brings us to the next question, which I've actually even touched on. Why is 9mm so popular? It is a 118-year-old cartridge. Okay, the answer is very simple. Uh, worldwide, it's very popular. I mean, it's this worldwide standard. I mean, I, I bet there are countries you can go into that are so heavily controlled that the only handgun ammunition you will find would be 9mm. And that's all their police and military would use. I mean, there, there are countries, that were, especially the ones that forbid um, people, ordinary citizens, from owning any kind of firearm. So um, there you go. And especially Europe. And, and that's, that's gone through Africa, South America, Asia. You know, it's, it's just how that is. The other thing is 9mm is the auto pistol equivalent of 38 Special. Why was 38 Special so popular? Well, because a non-firearms enthusiast, it was the largest gun a non-firearms enthusiast could probably shoot decently. And that's the same thing with the uh, um, 9mm. It's, it's comparatively, I don't want to say easy, but it's a much much more forgiving cartridge to train people on who've never fired a gun before. They usually find that they can manage a 9mm. Something like a 40 Smith & Wesson or 45 Auto is going to take a lot more time to train and get familiar with. So 9mm is hits that same threshold 38 special hit, which is people who don't shoot very often or people who don't shoot at all. And you can look at policemen who might, I don't know how often they qualify. But take people who qualify, say, twice a year for whatever armed profession they have, um, and that's all the shooting they do. They can probably get by. They can probably shoot a 9mm well enough to qualify and go from there. So that's the, uh, that's the story on that. And yes, it is 118 years old, and in full metal jacket variety, it's not that different. So I would think that... Um, you know, it, it, it's one of those things. As a matter of fact, one of the, one of the cool things is if you've ever shot some older Lugers, well, all Lugers are older now, but, uh, if you've ever shot Lugers, you know that they like, uh, ammunition that's a little more hotly loaded than the average nine millimeter you find. I mean, um, it just, it, just the way the gun was designed. And I assume that the ammunition back then was probably a little more potent. I don't know that for sure. I've never seen any chronographic results. But my suspicion would be that uh, it was probably slightly more powerful then. But it 
had the same drawbacks of a full metal jacket bullet so it really didn't didn't make any real difference so that is why okay have you ever fired black powder cartridges at long range over 500 yards um, I have not actually um, I actually have not uh, I find that black powder cartridge rifles I like them very much and I find though that uh, the only ones I really deal with are single shots realizing there could be lever guns but you know I don't really don't really play with those the single shots are te usually limited by two things that limit all basic rifles when you're shooting at longer range the the triggers are not what you would they're mechanically very old and they're really designed for reliability of igniting the cartridge they're not target triggers even the set triggers and all that are are better but they're not they're not perfect certainly not like we would have today on on some of our longer range stuff um, the other thing is sights uh, depending you can spend a lot of money on both the front and rear sights the vernier tang sights and the front globe sights you can spend a lot of money on those and you should if you're going to shoot a long range because those have to be precision made and they have to be you know they, they just can't look the part they actually have to be able to do it and the third variable is ammunition and specifically the ammunition variable piece is do you have the right bullet diameter to match your bore diameter do you have the right bullet design to fly and have you lubricated it properly so that um, you know the the uh, residue is manageable so those things all have to be be balanced which face it at four or five hundred yards my 6.5 Creedmoor is just a question of scope clicks okay that's it that's the only question um, whereas I would have to manage all those other variables very carefully to go between four and five hundred yards with a black powder cartridge rifle that being said a lot of people do it and and uh, I'm sure they can take them out to a thousand yards and maybe even farther um, the trajectories I don't really get <laughs> they, they start looking like you know moonshots you know um, but you know if you can get that consistency that doesn't really matter and uh, one of the things I've never really investigated is how much the wind affects those large bullets and you know the the experts to talk to would be guys who do long range the the silhouette shooting black powder cartridge silhouette shooting and go out I would assume that probably between zero and 300 yards that unless it's a really stiff wind you don't see much after that I don't know you have to ask um, it's not something I really want to go and research because simply I'm not actually going to do it if I if I had a black powder cartridge rifle that I just I, I would consider it a success if I can shoot a good repeatable group at 300 yards 
and hit a larger target at 400 and I would be ecstatic if I could even get close at five that that would kind of be where I am I have with trapdoor springfields believe it or not shot cloverleaf groups at 100 yards which shocked me more than anyone else I mean it shocked me incredibly it was a little high it was about four or five inches high so I would assume that that would put me on it like 300 or whatever yards understanding the trajectory is a lot more curved than it is for a uh, smokeless powder or something like a 6.5 Creedmoor or 7.62 NATO or something else um, but I, amazingly they can shoot quite well I, I do find the sights are very very limiting the trapdoor has tough sights um, the martini Henry sight is a little bit better for me for me it's a little bit better and then I have a sharps, which is a carbine, which really doesn't count because you don't shoot carbines at long range. And I've, you know, I've gotten close to targets, plinking targets, you know, 200 yards, you know, a 200 yard berm. You put, put, put things out there like uh, water jugs and all that. You can, I can hit them occasionally. And this is a, this is a vintage sharps carbine. This is not a new reproduction. The new reproductions, I would say, if I was going to do it, and all I cared about was hitting the target and I want to use a black powder cartridge rifle I would of course use one of the new reproduction guns and I would be very careful who I bought it from I would I would have to do all that research and everything else because you know there have been some sketchy ones put out in the past that didn't perform very well and a lot of people just didn't even know I mean you know the the amount of ignorance sometimes is amazing um, just because it shoots a cartridge does not mean it's like a modern cartridge rifle. You know, there's a big difference between 4590 Sharps and 300 Magnum um, in a lot of different ways. And, you know, learning those lost arts or nearly lost arts of managing a black powder cartridge rifle, managing black powder, managing all that um, is, is something very cool to learn. It's like it's. It's almost like the guys who who go after flintlocks and to a lesser degree cap locks. You know the the flintlock is its own creature, it's its own entity, and there those guys take a lot of pride in being able to manage that. I don't want to say primitive, but very early ignition system and and getting good results from it. And black powder cartridge rifles are basically the same way. A lot of guys really take a lot of pride in being able to hit targets with those but i myself am am a lot less ambitious than that um, maybe someday i'll change but for right now no i've never done it over 500 yards and uh you know we'll see all right would you recommend or carry a browning high power uh, i'd have to defer to this i love the browning high power um i have to tell you that uh during our match that we shot our wild geese match i could not find my box of high power magazines because i had i was set on wanting to do that and, and of course at the last minute i get rushed you know there's all the targets to bring there's all this that and the other so i did not i did not have um the organization that i really needed so when i went looking for it i couldn't lay my eyes on it the clock was ticking I saw the Beretta I saw the extra mags and I went with that and and went so 
um, you know, that's where I was with all that. And, you know, I thought it was pretty good. I thought it was actually pretty damn uh, um, good. Um, our friend of the podcast shot a Browning High Power and shot an exceptionally good score, um, which I thought was I thought was pretty pretty awesome because uh, I wanted to shoot mine and uh, I didn't do it. Shot a Beretta, and I always shoot the Beretta reasonably well, but not not super great, but not not bad at all. And and uh, I hadn't practiced with it, so uh, it was awesome though. Uh, the Browning High Power is an awesome gun as long as you know what you're getting. You're getting a single action. 13 or 14 shot i think they might make a, a 15 round mag now you know they've they've done cool things with some we always think that well a beretta is 15 rounds but by you know manipulating the springs and a few things they can actually get 17 rounds in you know they they've they've redesigned the internals of those magazines so they can hold more which i think is cool and that means that one's theoretically if you apply that same technology to the guns that hold 17 rounds maybe they hold 19 i don't know but uh yeah it holds it holds enough it's a pleasant gun to shoot they're accurate they're fairly concealable um one of the more concealable full-size automatics i think and uh you know i think they are you know still a great design and still a great gun and they're no less effective now than they were when they came out so yeah i would say if somebody really wants and there's actually good ones out on the market now the springfield armory's got one tesis has one and i think fn is going to uh bring out some kind of improved model which has never worked out for them every time they've brought out either a double action version of the high power or something else uh, it's never actually worked out so we'll see how that all shakes Okay, next question. Is it possible to handload military ball spec ammo for semi-autos? Uh, yes, it is, but it is not as straightforward as you would think. Um, what what I do is I and and again the loads I used in this last match were my hand loads because. You know they work I, I got them they work in semi-autos so um, how do I do that well the first thing I do is get a small base die a small base sizing die and I basically after I clean the cases I will usually deprime them separately uh, just because that makes it a little bit easier but I deprime them then I run them through the small base sizing die now, after I run them through the small base sizing die, they're, they're of course sticky and they have lube on them. Then I use a Dillon um, case trimmer with the appropriate die, and that's that's also a sizing die, but it's slightly larger than the uh, slightly more generous. It's not a small base die, but anyway, I put while my cases are still sticky, uh, I put them through the uh, the Dillon trim uh you know case trimmer the die in the case trimmer and that has worked well for me because it's it's basically getting two sizings and you know so if you have that maybe you have an occasional one that you short stroke or something anything like that really haven't had that problem but it's really nice having the two sizings and they're trimmed to to the proper length after sizing 
I then, you know, deburr them and chamfer the K's mouths. Then I prime them, charge them, put the bullets in. Then I use a Lee factory crimp die. And I realize if these were match loads, you would not do this. <laughs> but for loads that I want, and I don't want any bullet pushback because that will create a problem in a semi-auto. But I make sure that those that, that factory crimp die has put a good factory style crimp on that bullet. And um, if the bullet's got a cantalure, that's where I crimp it. And if it doesn't, well, then I just do the best I can, getting the overall length correct. And uh, I have turned out really good ammunition that way. You know, ammunition that I have a lot of confidence in. Uh, one of the other things I do is I take every... When I, when I get them, I take like every fifth... When I get them loaded, I take every fifth round. And now you have to be... You have to be careful with this. But I do a chamber test. I, I have a... Um, um, effectively, I, I take the gun apart, take the take the bolt out if I'm using like an FNFAL, and I just drop them in to see if they go in. If it sticks anywhere, and this is after I've removed the, uh, um, this of course after I've removed the sizing die uh, lube, you know, and and I've never really had one that I've kicked out. It's it's been uh, it's a little more challenging with five five six because the there's a lot of brass, a lot of different manufacturers, more manufacturers, and and uh, some varied stuff. So I basically uh, um, do that, and I put like every four or five rounds through that, um, every fourth or fifth round, I should say. And I've never really, I've never had a problem. I also check them in the magazine to make sure the overall length is correct. Um, I usually do that when I first am am setting up the die when I get my first loaded one out of the seating die I make sure that it's the correct the correct length and I check it with a uh, a caliper and also in the magazine just to make sure and so you know I, I you know you have to be careful but you can produce really good loads how many the other question that that comes with this is how many rounds how many loadings do you get out of a case and I'm very conservative on that. Um, I will. I think you can get an original firing, and two hand loadings are all I really want in a semi-auto. Um, that's just me. Uh, why buy a thousand-dollar gun <laughs> and blow it up because you you didn't want to buy a thirty-cent cartridge case? You know, it just just makes that thing so. Cartridge cases and all that are, are uh, I know everything's in short supply, but you know it's uh, it's just what I do, and and I've had very good uh, very good luck with it. So that's that's kind of where I am, and that's how I load ball ammunition. Other tricks are hey, you know if you're going to load a ball ammunition, you go to the ammo chart, you find an FMJ bullet that's the same weight and pretty much the same. Um, you know configuration as a ball ammo bullet and then you go through the loading manual for that bullet and see what the charge weight is to bring it up to the correct velocity and the good part is it's almost never as a matter of fact it is never a top load so you're loading kind of moderate stuff 
um, you're not pushing it with with uh, maximum loads so that's all very very good and and that's that's what I do and and uh, it's worked out very well I load a lot of 556 and I load uh, 762 NATO and 30 out six that way um, other stuff I do in smaller batches but um, that's how I do it and it works out pretty well all right next question what do you know about a Swedish M1907 automatic pistol in 380 caliber um, well I know about them uh, they're they're basically a larger copy of a Colt 1903 pocket hammerless and they were basically designed for the Swedish military um, in nine millimeter browning long so a little bit bigger cartridge than the 32 ACP you find in the pocket hammerless so it's been scaled up a little bit um, it's rare to find them in nine millimeter browning long anymore because they are um, they were converted to 380 the ones you see in 380 were converted uh, either by importers or I believe the Swedish military probably converted them um, as I recall Swedish military had them they adopted them in 1907 well in the late 30s the design is a little bit the designs a little a little bit long in the tooth so they decided to replace it with a Walther P38 well World War II starts to happen and they can't get P38s from Germany so they get the uh, Leyte pistol from the Finns and they license copy that so they use that unfortunately a lot of they the nine millimeter ammunition they used was they had loaded for their own submachine guns which was more powerful and it created some cracking problems in the Leyte frames so they withdrew those and they reissued the 1907s and I believe that's when a bunch of them were converted um, and I think they they probably some were imported and converted by stateside dealers too just because nine millimeter browning long um, just ain't around so you know as was the fashion in the 1950s and 1960s um, the Webley revolvers being a big example is that hey you bring something in it's in an oddball caliber what can I do to change it and they even did it recently you know within the last well 20 25 years ago with the uh, um, Moz 4956 rifles they you know century rechambered those from 7.5 French to 7.62 NATO with <laughs> predictably disastrous results because Century was doing the work so we have that all going on so I would say that um, you know if you find them it's probably going to be in 380 it is a big pistol for 380 um, they're fun to shoot they're a great piece of history uh, but they they are somewhat weak and so I would um, I would take that as a grain of salt. But they are kind of they are kind of cool. Most of them were made, I believe, by about 1920. You know, they went from like 1907 to 1920. So if you find one, it's going to be a hundred years old, and a cool old military pistol. Um, but it it probably has been converted from its original caliber. 
and I, I haven't looked I don't know the real difference between 9 millimeter browning short which is 380 and 9 millimeter browning long I have a funny feeling that pressure and everything else wasn't much of a <laughs> much of a difference so um, you know that is the story on that bad boy right there it is a a good cool pistol and the um, the ones I've seen have like I think it's pig um, hide holsters I think that's what they are they're really cool I mean they, they definitely look the period definitely are fun so um, yeah they're they're very cool and you know the nice part is I'd, I'd actually I hate to say this because I think conversion is a bad thing but you know when it comes to I've got a couple of Webleys that you know used to be able to buy dirt cheap I bought them when they were they're pretty inexpensive but when they've been converted to 45 auto, you know, I can shoot very, I can shoot, you know, very low pressure auto rim rounds in it. And, you know, it's pretty good. It works out. And that's a lot less expensive than um, um, the 455 ammo. A friend of the podcast has got his and he actually purchased a, uh, it's a little ring that fits on the back of the of the converted cylinder and you can use the original 455 ammo in it and that is very cool um, I just haven't gotten off my butt and ordered one of those yet but um, anyway those are those are very very cool and they are a way to restore in, at least in function the uh, Webley uh, these other ones I suppose you could find I suppose you could if somebody had a 9mm Browning Long chamber reamer which that has got to be rare if existent at all and they could go into the 380 barrel I'm sure just lengthen it just slightly so it would take the older um, cartridge and then uh, I'm sure they didn't change the magazine so you could probably uh, you could probably convert it back to original there but I would say what's the point 380 is easy to find 380 FMJ easy to find um, sometimes you, you just have to let it go and uh, that's that's probably the best piece of advice with the 1907 is if you got one and it's converted hey let it go have fun with it and uh, go from there okay here's our last question it's another one I don't know anything about okay what do you know about the 5.7 Johnson Spitfire and have you ever fired one the answer is I don't know a whole lot about it, but I'll tell you what I do know. And no, I've never fired one, and I've never actually seen one. Uh, late 50s, you know, Melvin Johnson was Marine Corps guy. He designed the Johnson automatic rifle, which at a, at a certain point was seen as some sort of a challenger or alternative to the M1 Garand. And I think they actually even tested them. And they found that the Johnson was a very good gun but it just wasn't any better than the Garand and in fact it, it probably in retrospect when you look at the design and a few things it was probably in service it would have been found inferior to the uh, to the Garand it just wasn't as robust that's just my opinion but I think the Johnson was a good but not a great rifle the Garand is a great rifle there was also a light machine gun version which I understand was just hellacious to shoot uh, it's like anything else and the army's about to find it out again. You you put a high-powered cartridge into a lightweight gun, and sometimes that doesn't work out so well. So he he did those. He did a few other things too. I I can't recall everything that he uh, 
was there. But you know, he was a he was a good designer, and one of the things he did was redesign uh, the cartridge for the M1 carbine to be basically a 22 neck down to 22 caliber. So you have kind of a almost a prototype of the 5.56 type of cartridge. Not they're not interchangeable, and the dimensions are all different, but. At least it was looking at that same kind of high velocity, lightweight bullet, flat trajectory. Uh, he chose the M1 carbine as the platform that he would put that in, which was smart at the time because there weren't a whole lot of light rifles around. So you had a light cartridge and a light rifle. You know, M1 carbine is still a very light rifle and still excellent in a lot of ways. Um, so we had that. And I think the he had a company and they would do two things. They would do an M1 carbine. And I don't know if these were commercially produced or conversions of military carbines. I tend to believe they were commercially produced because there weren't a whole lot of surplus carbines in the late 50s. But he essentially had the M1 carbine. And um, it looked just like an M1 carbine, except it had the barrel in 5.7. And, you know, that there you go. So it would, and allegedly they worked and worked reasonably well. Uh, the other one they had was a sporting rifle version, which had a, a much more sporter looking stock and, and a few other things, probably enhancements that made it look um, a little bit more like a sporting rifle. And so th those two things, I think they sold a few of them. Uh, they were long gone by the early 60s. I mean, they were, they were gone. So, but they've always, I've always seen references to them and I've always seen them around. Um, you can probably get reloading dies for them um, on a custom basis or special order basis. I can't imagine um, anybody has seen any loaded rounds for those ever. <laughs> so, I don't think there'd be any of that. Uh, I think even the finding one of the guns would be very very I don't know how rare they are but I do know that they're very scarce I don't think I've ever seen one for sale or anything not not that I was ever looking for it but uh, I think though it's a it's a very cool idea you know and, and you kind of look at the M1 carbine is such a good design that um, maybe the 5.7 by 28 would be a good good fit in it because the Johnson was 5.7 by 33 so it'd be five millimeters which isn't that much shorter of a case uh, you could put a little bit longer bullet in it probably and and then use the standard M1 carbine magazines that would be that'd be a very interesting gun that'd be a very interesting gun kind of the uh, it would be a hybrid of the the first and one of the best PDWs and the latest PDW. How cool would that be? Um, yeah, it would be a very interesting, a very interesting project just to do, if nothing else. You know, if, there are guys who sit around and, and think this stuff up and, and might, might crank one out, but I think that would be a fun project to do. And, you know, there are companies that make you can buy basically almost anything for an M1 carbine after market. So if you just made a receiver and a barrel, you could probably just get the aftermarket everything else. Imagine, imagine how cool it would be if you had the old M1A1 paratrooper stock 
with a 30 round magazine in 5.7 by 28 yeah that would be a very cool gun to have now is it any better than the regular carbine i don't know but um that would be that would be a fun experiment to do because you can essentially get those things you can get the repo stock you can get uh one of these you know newly made m1 carbines and then you would just have to source a barrel and uh you know i'd probably have to tweak around with the the uh it's it's kind of that short stroke gas system or tappet system i think they call it it's actually a tappet system uh you'd have to you'd have to monkey around with that a little bit and uh that would be very cool that would be very cool um yeah so there you go that would be the that's all i know about it but you know it was a good idea and in a lightweight enough gun you know there could be some room for it the other the other nice thing about m1 carbines are is that they don't they don't scream modern military they have a very traditional look so you know they're they're very cool guns to have and still a great pdw so anyway that's that well this is it for this edition of old school guns the podcast that tells you like it is and uh again if you have any questions or comments email them to me at kbmakel at aol.com kbmakel at aol.com or leave them on podbean but until next time this is old school guns out